Welcome to my podcast, Making a Way, a podcast created to help listeners going through a difficult time in any family law matter. My name is Sandra Guzman Salvato. I'm an attorney mediator in Maryland and joined today by my co-host. I'm Magdalena Diudo, and I am one of Sandy's associates. I'm a first year associate who helps her with her family divorce and custody cases. And today we'll be speaking with Dr. John Lefkowitz. He is a psychologist who has nearly 30 years of experience. He's a board certified clinical psychologist with a forensic specialty. He has had his own practice since 2006, and most of his time is spent as an expert in family law, both in performing custody evaluations and psychological evaluations and in consultation with firms and clients. The other small portion of his time is dedicated to executive optimization and leadership development with a big four accounting firm. He previously has served as a consultant for the Board of Examiners of Psychologists, and he also is a former member of the Maryland Psychological Association's Ethics Committee. He has been an expert witness 86 times in the state of Maryland and Virginia, in the District of Columbia, and in United States federal courts. Just a few things here that uh, we only have a certain amount of time, so we'll we hope to touch upon some of those um, areas. And the reason I chose to do this is because as a family law attorney, I find that mental health um, issues come up all the time. Accusations related to someone else's mental health come up all the time. And we attorneys have to struggle with how to prove this and how do we know that this is real because um, everyone you know, believes that their spouse is either alienating their kids, um, is a narcissist, is abusing someone. And so all those things really are helpful to know. So let's start with alienation. So I can't tell you how many times I've had clients tell me that their spouse is alienating their children. And I'd like to know from you, Dr. Lefkowitz, about alienation. Oh, sure, Sandy. And indeed, um, that's probably one of the most divisive issues in family law and Sadly, we see it with some frequency, and I could probably spend the better part of an hour just providing a monologue on it, which would not be helpful. But I think just very briefly, there's over the the term's been around for about three or four decades since about the mid 80s. Dr. Gardner coined the term parent alienation syndrome. And since that time, uh, a lot has evolved and developed uh, to the point now where we don't we try to avoid using the term alienation, but talk instead about resist refuse dynamics when a child or children are declining or very resistant about seeing a particular parent. Um, it's not to say that alienating behaviors don't exist. It's just a matter of um trying to define things more behaviorally as far as what's going on in, in the dynamic. I will say that there's there's one very important broad kind of macro area uh, that's also important to understand, and that is a single factor theory or a multifactorial theory about why this is happening in this particular family. And basically, it sounds a little Uh, more professorial than I intended to. But the single factor theory is what was believed decades ago. That was if there was some type of what we call um, resist, refuse dynamic going on where the children were opposed to spending time with one parent, that either that meant that that parent had been abusing the children such that the the child or children would be naturally resistant from spending time with that parent, you know, uh, understandably out of some fear, or if there was an absence of abuse, that would therefore mean that somehow um, the favored parent was actively undermining or uh, sabotaging that relationship with their co-parent in some significant way. The, The problem with the single factor theory well, there's a couple problems. One is it dramatically oversimplifies a very complex uh, set of circumstances. And another and, and problem is it completely decontextualizes what's happening in a complicated world of, of co-parenting issues, of child development, of sibling relationships, 
of challenged parenting in one way or another, in uh, children having impossible loyalty conflicts that they just uh, feel compelled to have to choose one parent over another. I mean, there's a host of issues that need to be better understood and explored in order to really even begin to understand what's the etiology or causes of a child or children resisting uh, parenting time with one parent. Okay, so how long did that single factor theory, like what time frame, was there a belief that it was a single factor? Yeah, I would say early on, as it was being, as Gardner's theories were beginning to get adopted, there was this idea of this, um, and I'm going to put it in air quotes, parent alienation syndrome that suggested that most of the time, if a child was refusing to see a parent, that was due to this alienating behaviors, telling a child that, you know, the other parent was dangerous or would hurt them or has done such terrible things or and actively working in some way to interfere with that parenting time. So that was, I would say that was maybe in the, maybe throughout the 90s until a seminal article in 2001 by Susan Johnson and uh, her <laughs> co-author talking about alienation as more falling on a continuum and that usually there being some type of combination of factors and the continuum being somewhere between alienation and estrangement and that there were usually, and it usually wasn't just one thing causing this. I would suggest things began to shift in the, in the, around 2001 with more work and research um, going on. And then a few years later, there was this concept of facilitative versus restrictive gatekeeping, which was another way of kind of looking at, again, what, what we're now generally referencing resist-refuse dynamics. And then certainly in the last few years, kind of focusing more on this, the more behaviorally and contextually and multifactorially uh, understanding understanding each case in that way. So what would you suggest if a parent suspects, right, that their spouse is alienating the children from them? What would you suggest that they do? All right. So a number of things. First, it's important to consult with a good family law attorney, <laughs> such as yourself, or, uh, you know, and number two is it'd be important that the children have access to their own therapy, typically, with a skilled, my bias would be more in favor of a child psychologist. And not only that, not only a child psychologist, but a psychologist who has expertise in high conflict divorce, because these cases can be very complex and polarizing. And it's important to have some training or some and or some knowledge of the social science literature about these types of cases. So that would be step one. And, and oftentimes another or that would be step two. Another step is sometimes it's important to have like a parent coordinator. I know you're familiar with that, mm -hmm. Sandy, who can help mediate disputes uh, between you and your and your spouse, particularly when it comes to the kids. And uh, sometimes even just using something like Our Family Wizard, which is well known among family law professionals to help streamline communication can be a good uh, a good strategy to use that can sometimes reduce conflict. And yeah, but these are um, these these are very difficult, challenging circumstances, typically. Yeah. And so parent coordination, yes, that is uh, definitely something that I propose and many times is agreed upon because that person is supposed to be neutral and sometimes mm -hmm. can, you know, enlighten one or both of the parties and, you know, make them commit to uh, a certain way of doing things. And so I do think that that's a great idea. I do agree. And our family wizard definitely is helpful for a lot of my clients because that's where they add all the appointments. They communicate through that. It's just one place to have, you know, all the communication and it's very helpful. Therapy for the children, do you suggest that reunification therapy be part of mm -hmm. the strategy? 
Yeah. So th- thank you for saying that, uh, Sandy. So, yeah. So sometimes there are therapists who specialize, who have specialties in what's called reunification therapy. And, and, and that's where a skilled mental health professional, again, who's experienced and well-trained in this area, will uh, commence a process where whereby in this therapeutic environment, the children um, can can reconnect with the uh, with, with the other parent. By the way, I was what I, what I also wanted to add in in these case in these situations, it's also extremely valuable for that parent. Um, because we can't ignore the fact that to have to experience this kind of uh, refusal by your by your children and not having time with them can be exceptionally, you know, emotionally painful for people. And so for those individuals, even if they they believe and even if it's credible that it's a result primarily of their estranged spouses um, uh, uh, manipulation or behavior, it's still very important for that person to have either their own individual therapy and or parent coaching to really help them better understand, you know, what, what, what's going on, help them with strategies for being more effective with communication with their co-parent, as well as um, how to address, you know, complicated, difficult issues with the children. No, I actually did not. And I don't know if a lot of attorneys think of a parent coach, but that is a a really great resource. I could see how that would be really helpful because if you are the recipient of the refusal, I can't imagine how painful that is. And a parent coach can certainly guide you. And I can't, you know, for everything that you want to be better at, you need a coach. So that is a great suggestion about what uh, the parent can do. And let me ask you this, though, about the parent that's accused of estranging the children or or having to do this. Uh, Do you think it's intentional? Do these parents know that they're doing this? You know, that's a great question, Sandy. So whether or not Specific alienating behaviors are intentional or not may be hard for the uh, for the outsider to discern, but certainly I've seen I've, I've observed circumstances where um, I th- there are elements of alienation going on, but they can be unintentional. For example, someone uh, the the favored parent with whom the children are uh, uh, presumably residing with may hear that parent. Uh, over easily overhear them on the phone complaining about their their spouse or citing specific examples of how of how hurt they have been by that spouse either you know psycho- psychologically emotionally uh, physically even or even if it's outside of, of hearing about it they may say just behaviorally they 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 may see on a parent's face when they're talking about seeing the other parent that you know that parent looks crestfallen or or sad in some way or you know kids you know sometimes we don't give them enough credit they're like mini radar detectors mm-hmm. they really pick up just about everything coming from uh from their parents even if they seem to be off in their own world somewhere but kids can really shock you by by how much they're uh learning or absorbing maybe not always in school but certainly sometimes when we don't want them to at home um so you know that's that's something for all parents to be aware of that whether it's you know complete you know even if it's unintentional it can still have a very negative impact on the children as far as their relationship with the other parent and of course what probably should also be stated is that, you know, what we understand, that's a very robust finding in the social science literature, is that children benefit from healthy, meaningful relationships across all domains with both parents, you know, provided that one of those parents is not engaged in some type of abusive behavior or severely impaired by a mental health or substance abuse related issue. So some of the, you know, it's important to note, like you said, that some of the messages that are being sent are not always spoken. Do you think that messages are conveyed by the way one parent treats the other parent in front of the children? 
Oh, yes, absolutely. The way the, the way parents speak to each other, um, the kids are looking for particularly, you know, I mean, nature abhors a vacuum. That's the l- very little bit of physics I, I know. So if there's if, if there, there's usually big gaps in what the children can really understand about what's going on, depending on a whole host of factors. So they'll look for clues from each parent, from the interaction between the parents, and a lot of that can be very subtle and nuanced. Or a child, for example, when you know when they have uh, a scheduled parenting time with the other parent, oftentimes there will be a kind of testing of a parent, perhaps the um, favorite parent, the parent they prim- primarily reside with, where they might say something. I don't really feel like going to see mom or dad yeah, today. All the time. Mm-hmm. And right, and how a parent. And that's all, almost all kids say that, even if it's a shared equal access schedule. And if a parent says, oh, my God, you know, you, you know, you're absolutely right. You don't have to see your, you know, your other parent if you don't want to. And I'm sure it must be so hard on you and frightening for you to be away from me. I mean, who knows? So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm using I'm kind of saying that in a rather extreme way. But if a parent sort of enables that rather than saying hey you know you always have a great time when you when you're at mom's house or dad's house and you usually come back with a big smile on your on your face and very happy and and you know how much your mom dad you know loves you and enjoys seeing you so you know and, and then we'll see each other again in you know in two days or three days or four days or however long it is so yeah so how a parent handles the almost expected, very mild resistance is very important and can serve to either uh, facilitate, I mentioned before about gatekeeping, can serve more in a, a facilitative process or a more restrictive process. Mm-hmm. And I hear sometimes, you know, the children, despite the encouraging, they just simply do not want to go. Do you think that it's hurtful down the line if children are forced? to go like literally picked up or or just uh, in some way forced to go to the other parent. Yeah, so I'm gonna use one of uh, the favorite words of psychologists, which is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we never wanna see a situation where a kid has to be, you know, really at any age. And, and certainly there comes an age where it becomes very untenable to do that, certainly in mid to late adolescence. Um, but even with bigger bigger kids, you still it should still give everyone pause. You know, it, it potentially could be detrimental, but it potentially could be favorable. Again, you know, these situations are so complex and there are kind of graphs and charts that I won't do a good job trying to mm-hmm. explain uh, verbally in some of the you know professional papers that kind of kind of show just how complex all these different factors are that impact you know how uh, that that can potentially impact these resist refuse dynamics mm-hmm. yeah so that's a great answer because I think that sometimes you know I've had judges sometimes say, well, the children don't get to make the call. They should just be forced to go. And then sometimes, despite a parent's efforts, the children don't want to go. And and so the parents are stuck in that situation. So it, there's not one answer. Sometimes it's good to force and sometimes it may not be because there could be other things going on that have to be addressed um, before that can happen. So the therapy, I think, is great. But uh, with therapy for the parent and the child, the reunification therapy is could it does it need to be done at the right time or can it be done? any? Yeah, the right time. Well, I guess it's sometimes oftentimes it's impossible to know when the right time is. But yeah, I mean, I think early is better than later. Like anything in the broad scope of understanding health or medicine, you know, prevention is the, the best cure. And while it may be difficult, impossible to prevent something that, you know, because clearly this wouldn't be coming to your attention, typically, Sandy, or mine, if this was prevented, but the earlier you can address this, the better. And I, I think we've probably both heard many situations where despite one parent's efforts to say, hey, you know, this is, this is a problem. We need to address this. Another parent might be reluctant or refusing to agree to have, 
children involved in mental health treatment to, to address this. So, yeah, the sooner, the earlier the, the reunification process and other therapeutic components are put in place, um, typically the better it is for, for, for the family. Um, but, you know, and, and then, of course, we all have to be mindful of the financial constraints of some family and uh, and challenges with schedules. But that shouldn't, you know, uh, but but still, this should be a priority as much as possible. The the treatment to address this issue of resist, refuse dynamics. Okay. Is there um, so if someone's looking for, let's say, a reunification therapist, are there some things that you would suggest that they um, look for some qualities or something that, you know, would be helpful if it's going to be successful? Yeah, so the f- that's a great question. So I think the first thing is to ask, you know, is if it's one of your clients, they should ask you for some referrals or um, or wh- whoever their uh, attorney might be, to family law attorney might be, to ask them if they can provide referrals. Because typically, if you're just going through your insurance and looking at a list, it's going to be close. It's going to be exceptionally difficult to find somebody who has this high level specialty. Um, and even, you know, ideally, assuming, you know, and again, I appreciate not every family has these resources, but ideally it's best to go with, you know, a referral from your attorney or perhaps if you're in your own therapy or parent coaching, you know, to ask them for a referral. Um, because, you know, most of us in the broader community know of folks who do, who have experience doing this work and have had, um, and have generally had some, some pretty good results. Uh, and by the way, for the more extreme cases, there are, um, a few kinds of, I don't know if camps are, are, are really retreats type places families can go, um, to, you know, to address this challenge that they're having. Uh, and, and those are, uh, you know, those are, can be a bit controversial, but they can also be very effective. I, I had not actually heard or thought of camps or retreats that that is probably a great idea. Um, if the child can tolerate being just in the same room as, as the parent. That sounds well. Yeah, and and the the key is the entire family has to participate. I know Robin Deutsch has she's a um, she's an expert in this field, and she has a retreat up in oh I want to say it's either Massachusetts or Vermont. Richard Warshock, who's also very well known in this field, he had a retreat based in um, Texas. Um, though I'm not sure if Dr. Warshock's retreat is still ongoing. I mean, there's a, I think there's one on the West Coast, too. I mean, there's a few in the country and all those folks. I mean, Robin Deutsch is outstanding. And uh, Dr. Warshock, of course, is very well known in the field, too. I'm not as familiar with the one on the West Coast. Um, but some, but it, it's critical that both parents have to be involved. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I think most of these places won't won't accept the family if both parents are not involved oh that's that's really important i so i think it's a you're saying it's a family problem so both parents would need to be involved regardless of who they choose right and that's and that's such an important way to look at it i mean sometimes your clients may not appreciate it to be uh, defined as a family problem. Um, But, you know, in these highly emotional charged situations, narratives tend to become more and more polarized. And usually the, the, the reality of the situation is just, is just very complex and is some combination of, uh, of both, of both parents' narratives, which does not mean that the truth lies in in the middle sometimes the truth can lie far more with one side or the other though sometimes it is more a mix of things that comes out somewhere in the middle i mean again every every family circumstance is uh is different 
Well, thank you for that. I did learn some things and now I have a little, you know, more options to provide my clients um, with the retreat idea. So let's talk about our next topic. I often hear clients say my spouse is a narcissist or my ex-spouse or I can't parent with this person because they're a narcissist. So tell me a little bit about narcissism. Okay, well, I think I think you're right, Sandy. I, I hear that oftentimes that tends to come more from from women <laughs> about their uh, husbands. And oftentimes the men will describe their wives as borderline. Um, so, I mean, I think certainly the term narcissism is used colloquially um, versus uh, tr- truly in, in a clinical sense of what's necessary to diagnose uh, a personality disorder. Um, but I, um, I find that... Uh, eight to nine times out of 10, that those diagnoses don't hold if you really shine a a close, you know, kind of forensic psychological light on them. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they are accurate. Um, Or sometimes there's, you know, somebody may have some traits of narcissism versus a full-blown, what we would call being able to make a DSM-5 diagnosis. What I would recommend for folks, Bill Eddy is a, um, he's both an attorney and a social worker based out in, now he's in San Diego, California, I believe. And he has a number of great books. um, And one that addresses just that issue of kind of narcissism is called, narcissism and borderline personality disorder primarily is called splitting. Um, And he has a couple other books that are similar to that, talking about how to know if your spouse has one of these uh, personality disorders, but more and more importantly, how to respond if your spouse falls in one or the other of these categories. So um, so Bill Eddy's material is uh, has helped a lot of folks and is and is very, uh, very valuable. Okay. So tell me about these traits. What are some traits? Um, oh, of, of narcissism? Yes. Well, there'd be a tendency toward uh, grandiosity and self-importance and uh, a lack of a, a lack of empathy and uh, a, a belief in um, in, in a need in a, in a great need to be admired. Um and uh, and, and typically, um, when you c- combine those traits, well, the, you know, early on in a relationship, someone might see that person as just being very self-confident, and they often can be very successful. People who, even people who uh, meet criteria for a full-blown narcissistic personality disorder, because. In some areas, frankly, of business, or if you excuse the expression law, um, sometimes those traits work for people, particularly if they can back them up to some degree. However, they don't tend to work in intimate long-term relationships, such as marriages, for perhaps obvious reasons, because when someone's so self-absorbed and focused on their grandiosity and how special they are and have an endless, boundless need for admiration and, um, and can't really empathize at all with their their spouse um that typically does not make for a uh, healthy loving lasting relationship how to respond i think that 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 would be the difficulty with Mm -hmm. someone like that um do you think that boundaries help if someone has these these traits yeah boundaries always help disengaging so in other words, not trying to get into a fight with that person about who's right and who's wrong, who's how great or bad something or somebody is, and to keep it just very focused on the business of co-parenting the children and to create and to do as much as you possibly can through digital communication so that there's a, a record of the communication and to frankly just be all business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are the pickup and drop off times. This is when, you know, a child's pediatrician's appointment time is. This was the bill for the, you know, the medication the child needed that, you know, from based on the court order, you need to pay 45% of, you know, or whatever, you know, so, so but but then not to engage in 
uh, who was the better or worse parent or who's uh, doing what to whom. No, just about the business of co-parenting. should be limited to that. And then if there's these attempts, you know, because a lot of times someone will still attempt mm-hmm. to try to engage you in all kinds of silliness and unproductive nonsense, you just don't respond. Mm-hmm. You just log it and don't respond. If there's anything anything in that communication that has a business of co-parenting piece, then only respond to that. Yes, I will pick up the children at four o'clock on Monday or whatever it is, or or, or, you know, thank you for sending me the soccer schedule or whatever it might be. So just mm-hmm. only focus on the business of co-parenting. I like that because I think that it's overwhelming if someone does have, you know, those qualities, right? And they are narcissists and accusations, I'm sure could be overwhelming and da- come daily and at all sorts of hours. And, uh, you know, it's probably stressful to get that all the time. But if I think someone knows that they do not have to respond <laughs> to everything <clears throat> and can limit that, I think that would that would really help a lot of people. Yeah. And similar to that, Sandy, that if someone, you know, say they're supposed to be in exchange at 5 p.m. and, mm-hmm. you know, you say in an email or text message, hey, um, please confirm that you'll be picking the kids up at, at five. And the person says, don't you know who I how busy I am, how much work I have? I can't. Then you say, OK, if I don't hear from you by 4 p.m., then uh, the children will not be at the exchange center or or if there's a place where the children are supposed to be for that exchange or we'll assume you're not coming. But then, of course, it's, you know, that can get into difficult legal things. So, you know, the more things that can be put into a court, memorialized in a court order or in a parenting, a signed parenting agreement, the better, because if someone wants to play games by maintaining a high level of ambiguity, that's harmful to the children. I mean, that's the bottom line. So, you know, putting in sentences like that, that says, you know, a parent must confirm by X time prior to a transition. Otherwise, if not, if the children are not picked up within, you know, 15 minutes of that time, the access time will be, you know, terminated, you know, but, you know, it's all, you know, so again, I, I, Appreciate that's that's your skill set, but those mm-hmm. things really need to be memorialized in, in documents, and um, rather than get into that push pull. Mm-hmm. And it is difficult to plan for everything. It, you know, things always come up, um, and that you just could not have thought of. Um, but it's you know, things can always be modified or updated as kids get older and they have more things to attend. And so, I agree. More detail, the better. Um, in these situations. So now the third thing that I have occur a lot in my cases is custody evaluations. Now, a lot of times, you know, they're helpful to the court because, you know, both parents uh, may be fit. One of them may not be, but sometimes parents look to private custody evaluations to provide the court some insight into who the children would be better off with, you know, what's in their best interest. And I know that you do custody evaluations, you do them privately. Now, in an ideal world, if a client has the funds, I do prefer that they be private and they do cost a lot more, but I think that, you know, you get what you pay for. So tell me a little bit about um, your work with custody evaluations. There's private evaluations, which, of course, is what some of what I do. And then there's also evaluations that that the court can do. And the benefit of that, of course, is they're free, though it's not nearly as comprehensive an evaluation as a private evaluator would do over over months and uh, and, and a very, um, very comprehensive, studied process of the family. So yes, indeed, it will cost quite a bit of money. Um, and the the purpose of the custody evaluation is to be able to provide the core with a um, evidence-based opinion, uh, essentially about legal and physical custody primarily, as well as um, any additional recommendations that that often may be around um, uh, mental health needs or related needs for the family. 
it can be very beneficial in, you know, in these complicated cases where, you know, say there are allegations of alienation or domestic violence, if it's a uh, relocation type case, um, if, it, if there's a parent, one or both parents have significant history of mental health or substance abuse related issues, if there are, well, we talked about related to the, you know, these significant resist, refuse dynamics and trying to understand that better. So there's a lot of very important reasons why you might do a custody evaluation, um, because it, as you said before, Sandy, it really does assist the court with objective, neutral data set that's hopefully analyzed and synthesized in a way that distills a logical set of recommendations, you know, that oftentimes the court does it uh, does adopt in in part or in full, but as you know, not always. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. so in, indeed, if a family can afford it, and the, there's a set of difficult, complex issues, it can be very valuable. Yeah, I have started to lean uh, more on the private. I've noticed that it's a 50-50 chance that the court will really weigh that evaluation heavily. Um, and I think it's because maybe there's a lot of cases and maybe the evaluator doesn't have the time to really dive into this case and really thoroughly evaluate. There may not be the resources or the time. So can you describe what your process is when you conduct an evaluation? Yeah. So there's a number of components to it. So usually provided there's not a uh, protective order in place, I'll, I'll start off by meeting with parties together to, you know, just better understand what the what the issues are. Then I'll have usually I have about six six meetings, six individual meetings with each party after that, which will include you know, extended interviews, psychological testing. Then I'll meet with, depending on the ages of the kids, I'll typically have a couple meetings with the kids. Again, depending on developmentally where the kids are, I may do some psychological testing with them. I will do home visits with each parent and the children. I'll do structured observations where uh, in the office where I'll have the, the parent and each child or children in the office together where there's a certain structure to that. And I'll uh, review some of these cases, as you well know, Sandy, have voluminous amounts of records. You know, my job is to review and make sense of those records, hopefully not an entire truckload. Uh, but I've had, I think we've both had cases like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then collateral informants are very important. So that can be anything from, you know, the pediatrician, teachers, and again, and if, if there are therapists involved for the children, then in order for me to speak to them, that requires a privilege attorney or be a best interest attorney who can um, make a decision about whether or not privilege is waived. And, but also I'll talk to neighbors, friends, coaches, occasionally family members, daycare providers. You know, usually in a private custody evaluation, I, I try to talk to at least 12 to 15 people. I mean, I've had cases where I've spoken with up to 30 people in very, gosh, and that it's a lot of time. Um, so as, as you're getting the picture, that's why, you know, <laughs> uh, myself and my colleagues tend to charge a lot for these types of evaluations because it is very time intensive. Oh, to say nothing of the fact that, you know, you produce a report of your findings. Um, and frankly, in co- I don't write 100 page or more reports as, you know, and again, with all due respect to my very esteemed, talented colleagues, I just find that um, I I don't have perhaps as much to say Mm -hmm. um, that requires 100 plus pages. Um, So I usually try to keep my reports between 30 and 40 pages. And so you did discuss who you spoke to. So let's talk about the parent that is going to be evaluated. How do they prepare to be observed with the children? What are you looking for? That's a good question, Sandy. So Mm -hmm. there's nothing they need to do to prepare other than just 
be themselves. Okay. Um, so what are you looking for? So you're looking for the quality, the nature and quality of the interaction between child, children, and parents. You know, I don't want to say too much about this. <laughs> don't want to give away all the tricks of the trade, but it's not like there's a specific right or wrong answer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how how warm... Uh, or attentive is the parent? Do they have the ability to be empathic? Can they set rules or boundaries when appropriate? Are they overly harsh or too permissive with the child or children? How do they respond when something unexpected happens? Are they behaviorally, what are you observing? So for, I'll, I'll give a couple examples. There was one case I did where that was very worrisome, where I, the kids were about two and a half and maybe five. And this one parent who was not very aware of his surroundings, you know, picked up the child in their basement, you know, by their legs to twirl them around, but didn't realize he was coming within inches of the wall of banging the child's head into the wall. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I was, you know, because the only time you have to intervene as an evaluator is if there's a clear or imminent danger issue. So mm. I think at that point, I got so nervous that it was literally like, and, and the parents not clearly not paying attention as he's swirling the child around, you know, which could be fun if you're outside. I don't, anyway, so that was, I think the only time I ever had to say, hey, you know, maybe we could think about doing something else now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, clearly, yeah. I, I, you know, anything. Yeah, so, I mean, what I, I certainly don't want to have you give up your your secrets here, but um, <laughs> there's not really <laughs> secrets. You know? I mean, they're all in. So it's driven by peer reviewed literature. It's in the yeah, but sorry, okay, go ahead. But but I think the bottom line is, I mean, the parent can act naturally, right? Yeah. I mean, do something that they normally would do. Uh, with their child engaged the way they normally would engage. And um, like you said, things unexpectedly happen. So, I mean, how do you handle that? Right. So, yeah. So, for example, with a home visit, I'll just what I'll tell people is I'll be there for a few hours on this day or that day. And just I'll just essentially not really, but be a fly on the wall. I just want to want to hang out what you guys would normally do on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but, you know, so I remember once, I think it was the very first meeting in that joint meeting I mentioned with parents where there was a call, it was a call from the school nurse, um, to the parents and apparently mom's phone was off. Oh, I probably shouldn't say that, but this was years ago and they only reached the dad. But anyway, um, it was clear how each parent handled the situation as far as which parent was using far better judgment and reasoning skills and the ability to be kind of thoughtful and ask good questions versus how another parent was handling the situation. I mean, it was dramatic. Um, so yeah, but again, and again, that was, and, and, but when you spend enough time with folks over many months, typically some unexpected things happen. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. So are you, um, do you like when parties, parents give you information? Like, let's say, for example, they have text messages, that um, maybe reveal something they're trying to tell you about the other parent or pictures or videos? Like, are you a fan of getting that kind of information? Well, yeah, what I tell all parents at the outset, uh, whether a custody evaluation or a psychological evaluation, is I have to take a trust but verify approach. So in other words, because this is a forensic endeavor versus a clinical one, which is more of a helping, empathetic uh, type relationship. Mine is I have to be a neutral objective evaluator and as much as possible where there are multiple data points that support a particular uh, allegation or theme, I have to rely upon that versus 
and I hate to say just self-report because, you know, there's so much that you can't necessarily prove. But going back to what you're saying, Sandy, yes, if there's digital communication that supports what somebody is saying or, you know, photographs sometimes can be misleading. And of course, with video slash or as <laughs> I'm not a legal scholar, but I do understand that in the state of Maryland that you need someone's permission to make to make a recording. So if there's recordings that are, you know, not agreed to by both parties, typically, you know, I'll, I'll ask both attorneys, I'll say, hey, somebody suggested I listen to this recording. I'm not clear if, you know, both parties were aware, please share your thoughts. And typically, at least one of the lawyers says, oh, no, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, or I think with videos, if the audio's off, it's my understanding that you might be able to observe that. Um, but I always I always check with counsel first. But, you know, as should, of course, you know, your clients should check with you, Sandy, as I'm sure you tell them before sharing. No, definitely. Something. One of the things I say is, you know, whenever you have, you know, something like this a custody evaluation going on, you know, you have to stay in touch and communicate with your attorney every <coughs> way, get your advice from your attorney. And if you can't afford an attorney, certainly, you know, maybe do a consultation with one. Um, at least, because it's very important, you know, not to be blindsided by a decision because you just didn't know. And so that is important. Um, now, let's talk about the cost. Like, I know there it, maybe there's a range, maybe there's not in, in that area with your colleagues. So what are some ranges and prices? Yeah, so I would say... Yeah, there is a big range. So I would say in general, you're you're looking, and again, this is a range between twenty-five and thirty-five thousand dollars. Now, I know of cases, they they were not mine, that cost upwards of eighty to ninety thousand dollars for a custody event, and that was unusual because it involved some travel, but I mean, if there's, say, three, four kids, if a parent lives in another location, you know, the cost can quickly get upwards of 40,000 plus, Um, you know, but generally, and again, part of that depends where you look, you know, Montgomery County, for example, D.C., you know, even parts of, you know, like Fairfax County, Alexandria, um, you know, custody evaluations are going to be expensive, uh, perhaps in areas more out toward like in Maryland, out toward the eastern shore or western Maryland. Or, you know, they, they may be a bit less, but I can only really speak for myself and okay. what I've seen with my colleagues locally more so. OK, well, that that definitely gives us a good idea. So how long do they generally take? And that may be a range, too. Yeah, it is. So, for example, you know, so part of that depends on the time of year you're starting. You know, so, for example, if you're bumping up against holiday to holidays, like November, December, late November, December, you know, typically people aren't going to be around as much or, you know, for obvious reasons, school vacations, people's vacations, breaks, what have you. So that tends to postpone them or when things when cases go over the course of the summer and kids can be in sleepaway camps or uh, and people also go on vacations typically. Um, so that can extend the time a bit, but typically I would say in general, from the time of your first meeting to actually having a report, typically three and a half to four months. Um, usually I would say probably closer to four months is what I shoot for. Now I've seen now in fairness, sometimes because of some of those reasons I was noting, things can take, take longer, um, or there can be situations where kind of unexpected twists and turns take place with the family. Um, so that can extend things. Um, and some evaluators, frankly, just take take quite a bit longer. Um, so, you know, there's a range. I mean, I, I've heard of valuations taking more than, I hate to, not, not mine, uh, <laughs> I'll say that, but a year or two before they're completed, wow. which, yikes. Yeah, that's yeah, probably. That, that is a long time. I think that we um, explored the top three topics that I think come up with, um, with me anyway, a lot, alienation, narcissism, custody evaluation. So tell our listeners um, if they would like to have a custody evaluation in their case, how they can contact you. 
Well, typically, you know, I get contacted by by the attorneys, right? Or uh, or sometimes, you know, also I serve sometimes as an expert witness on behalf of one side or the other, depending on the circumstances. But again, you're paying for my time, not my opinion. So, and I'm not an advocate. I'm I I'm there to be able to provide a distillation of the trends in the social science literature that may or may not, you know, support your case. You know, I also conduct these forensic psychological evaluations, which are, you know, almost always referred to me by counsel or by the court. I briefly did some consultation um, with the Army and the Intel Division, but now the consultation I do outside of family law, which is about a a quarter of my time, I I work... conducting executive optimization leadership development in with a big four uh, accounting consulting firm. Anyway, that's sort of beside the point, but uh, but someone's welcome to contact me by email. And that's just my first name, John, J-O-H-N, at suburban, the word suburban, then the word psychology.com. So it's just my first name, John, J-O-H-N, at suburbanpsychology.com. Oh, and thank you very much for uh, giving me the opportunity to be on your show, Sandy. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate your insightful and perceptive questions, and hope that it you know help help some people with you know, perhaps understanding some things more, more than they had previously. Okay, so I would tell our listeners that um, if you think any of these issues are going on, or you think that might be helpful, maybe tell your attorney if you have one right now now have heard someone that um, you liked and could be helpful in your case. I practice in Maryland. If you'd like to contact me about any family-related issue, divorce, custody, child support, or domestic violence, I'm in Rockville, Maryland, and my number is 301-340-1911. Or you can also visit my website, which is www.husmansalvadolaw.com. And I can certainly help you. And if I'm not the right attorney for you, I am okay with that. I have a lot of colleagues um, with different areas of expertise that I can also recommend. And I often do. Um, That's certainly not a problem. I like to be a resource that I just like to help people. And that's why I do these kinds of podcasts. Um, I really thank you, uh, Dr. Lefkowitz, for being a guest here today. You know, my hope is that the information that you provided today would help our listeners maybe get some hope or some insight, some ideas on how to deal with their situation that they're going through. Um, So I hope that you have um, listened to this podcast, gained some information. And if you do think that it was useful, please like it and recommend it to others. 